Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Change Healthcare Podcast. I'm Thomas Lohr, the Executive Vice President and President of our Technology-Enabled Services Division at Change Healthcare. Today, we'll be talking about the impact providers are facing with the COVID-19 and what the future of the financial transaction in healthcare will look like. Our guest is Joe Pfeiffer, the President and CEO of the Healthcare Financial Management Association, or HFMA. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thank you, Thomas, and it's an honor to be here with you today. Uh, Joe, before we get started, can you please tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you and your team at HFMA are focusing on every day to serve your members? Oh, gosh, we'll just do very little bit about myself and focus more on HFMA. But uh, but I've been a HFMA CEO for um, eight years now. Uh, prior to that, I was CFO of a couple different healthcare systems in Michigan. And uh, prior to that, uh, uh, I spent nine years with uh, Ernst & Young, or EY as they go now, um, working in healthcare. So I've been in healthcare my whole career, um, but last eight years, uh, CEO of HFMA. Uh, is, is, uh, people may know about HFMA, but just to give you some basics, we're a, a professional society type organization. <clears throat> we're over 56,000 members now. Um, and uh, about half of those are uh, what we call enterprise members, and the other half would be individual members. Uh, and by professional society, what I mean by that is that we know we're not a you know a lobbying organization. We don't have a you know big pol- political action committee. We we focus on educating our members um, and not yet members and helping them uh, navigate their way through uh, this complex industry. So we have a series of things like this. We do our own podcast. We have a series of webinars, live education, certifications, uh, magazine. You know, we just deliver. We're a content deliverer and, and um, um, again, just helping people navigate their way through uh, this complex industry that we're in. Thank you, Joe. All right, so let's get started and then maybe, you know, we can first recognize our, our new reality, right? And to state the obvious, we are truly in uncharted territory. Um, you know, as of today, the CDC really reports that, you know, we have about 1.2 million confirmed cases of the COVID uh, in the U.S. and, you know, unfortunately close to 70,000 deaths. So obviously, you know, a significant human cost to this crisis. Economically as well, you know, the numbers are adding up. Uh, you know, 30 million Americans filed for unemployment over the past six, seven weeks. Um, and, you know, our industry, healthcare, is also uh, affected deeply, right? I mean, a recent report by Crow suggested that about, uh, you, know, you know, in totality, Hospitals in the U.S. Um, are experiencing about $1 billion in lost revenue b- directly uh, because of the, of the COVID. So uh, a very, very difficult and challenging environment. Uh, you are obviously with HFMA talking to, you know, a, a significant portion of the healthcare provider segment on a regular basis. What are you hearing from the ground? What are you hearing from your members in terms of the impact to date of this crisis? Well, Thomas, you know, you're your uh, opening point is spot on there's no doubt we are in a historic time um you know you know i think i think about this you know we live in an era of hyperbole and and uh 24/7 news coverage and you know you you can't hardly escape it uh but this is truly unprecedented and the implications of this um both from a clinical and a financial perspective are far reaching and you know quite frankly i don't know that we know them all yet and uh I, I tell you, we're learning something new every day. Uh, 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, this 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 resonates certainly with what we're hearing on our side with our with our customers. You know, recently I heard a, a hospital CEO describing you know his hospital really as a battlefield, and what he was indicating to me, and I don't know if this will this will resonate with you as well, but I think you know initially. Uh, you know, the immediate reaction was, okay, well, how do we basically, uh, you know, address the clinical dimension of this crisis and reconcile, you know, the, the issue of ICU bed capacity and then, you know, taking care of the PPE supply chain. Um, I'm starting to see a little bit of an evolution and, and you know, uh, healthcare executives starting to think about the recovery and the return to new normal. Are you sensing this pivot uh, as well uh, with your members? Well, it's interesting. I, I think there's differences uh, geographically, and, and uh, of course, there's differences between hotspots and non-hotspots. Um, I think uh, in, in short summary, but then I'll add a little color to this, I think that um, at least the CFOs I'm talking to, they, they are trying to shift their focus on <laughs> determining what it looks like going forward, but that's a challenge in and of itself. Um, you know, in terms of of the you know the hotspots um, those areas of the country of course you know everybody sees and hears about New York every day but there are other hotspots around the country not you know one of which is Detroit you know in my home host home state of Michigan um, you know there's a different story there than than those other places where they just haven't seen the numbers you know in the hotspots as you mentioned that you know there were capacity issues there were um, you know, extremes uh, within the health system of some areas being overwhelmed um, with uh, with inpatients and um, having major uh, capacity issues, and yet other parts of their system that were virtually emptied overnight. You know, whether it's physician offices or ancillary uh, um, uh, departments, you know, various outpatient services, etc. And of course, we've all heard about the PPE and and you know some of those hot spots were. My gosh, I mean, it's almost unthinkable. And, you know, you read about this, and but if unless you really stop and think about it, but, you know, even having to make triage decisions about who gets ventilators and who doesn't, you know, those are um, really sobering thoughts. And the trauma of the impact of this, both on the health systems and on the individuals, uh, those frontline workers, is... Um, uh, is pretty uh, amazing, <laughs> and uh, so they're you know they're they're still dealing with that in many of those places, and and um, you know they're winding themselves out of it in in some, but um, you know starting to turn their thoughts in the future. In the non-hotspots, I mean it's they have not had those kinds of issues. They they too were scrambling for PPE and. And um, I think many of those issues have been maybe not eliminated, but mitigated significantly. Um, but they're looking at a, a, their own version of a financial calamity here. You know, you just, when you empty your hospital uh, and your outpatient uh, services uh, to, um, you know, to revenue <laughs> producing services, um, and we're largely a, a, you know, relatively a fixed cost industry, um, you know, the financial implications of that are absolutely devastating. And so uh, to your question, they are starting to turn their sights on the future, but it's a, it's a very uncertain view and there's not a consensus as to um, you know, what this recovery is going to look like. I mean, we use the term, you know, return to normal. What's, what's normal? Uh, what is going to be normal? I think that's one of the big questions that the CFOs are asking.
Absolutely. And and Joe, when you know you're describing basically all of these unknown um, that um, hospitals in hotspots and non hotspots are going to have to think about and make decisions about in terms of you know charting their their course towards the the new normal uh, and whatever that looks like. I mean, what are what are some of the bigger areas of doubt or or unknown? You know, what are the variables that you think are going to are going to matter the most as hospitals are trying to reestablish a little bit of a um, this post-COVID, post-COVID world. Yeah, I um, it, I think it's in in a couple different categories. One would be um, the you know what is what can we expect in terms of pent-up demand and and how and when will that demand come back? You know, most healthcare systems, in fact, virtually all healthcare systems, shut down. You know, quote elective care. And and I say quote, and if this were a live video or a, you know video, you'd see me putting air quotes around you know elective because unfortunately that's a term that gets misunderstood. You know, so much of this elective care is not really elective. <laughs> Maybe there's some flexibility and timing, but it's um, you know when you talk about some types of cancer surgeries or. Uh, you know, or even orthopedic surgeries, uh, you know, how elective is it really? But that's the term that we use and, and they put all those, you know, on ice for a while. Um, you know, we don't know what um, what that return will look like. And I know health systems are starting to open up uh, um, some of their, uh, you know, ancillary services. Um, and that depends on, again, geographically. Um, but the the return of that business um, is unclear, both in terms of magnitude and the timing. And so that's one element of what this looks like going forward. So the other element looks like going forward is, um, you know, there's been an explosion of virtual care, uh, telehealth, um, whatever term you want to use, um, virtual visits, uh, talking to your your physician or your uh, other care provider, you know, the PAs are, you know, are, are huge in this, um, you know, visits uh, for all kinds of things using, um, you know, remote video capabilities. And so, uh, and the regulations allowing that by CMS have been relaxed significantly, uh, albeit on a temporary basis. So one of the other big questions, well, and one more background piece of information, you know, that, that happened virtually overnight in many organizations. There were a lot that were geared up for this, but they just didn't see the traction. Uh, and then almost like flipping a switch, um, you know, that became a normal course of business. And so how much of that is going to uh, stay in place? How much of that genie is out of the bottle in terms of, of uh, virtual visits? Um, and you think about it from a consumer perspective, um, I think it's going to stick. I, a lot of it will stick. Why? I mean, if, if I could do a visit in my, uh, you know, sitting in my uh, my home with a hoodie on um, and, you know, dial up and have minimal wait time, you know, that sounds a lot better than hopping in my car and driving 30 minutes and sitting 30 minutes in a waiting room um, and, uh, you know, add it all up, the care itself ends up being a multiple hour environment. So how much of that is going to stick and how does that change uh, workflows and referral patterns within these health systems? You know, that's a big question mark. And so, you know, whether it's the return of, of, of you know, revenue producing activities or just the shift to 
different modes of care, uh, those are the kinds of things that CFOs are, uh, you know, they're not just CFOs, the entire C-suite, they're trying to wrap their head around. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. We're, you know, in, in addition to the return of the elected and, you know, revenue generation, in addition to telehealth and, you know, the, the, the theme of digital health that you're touching upon, you know, and, and really a different type of, you know, consumer engagement, patient engagement, you know, very mechanically, I think also, you know, the, from our side, what we're hearing is that the complexity of how to think about bringing people back to the job site. You know, man, many of the um, hospital-based staff today is working from home. And, uh, you know, thinking about, you know, how do you, you know, how do you reconvert your hospital, you know, into a, a, in a, an establishment, you know, an infrastructure that allows for social distancing, you know, in the context of delivering care. Uh, you know, who do you bring and who do you not bring back? Um, you know, how to bring back, you know, the, the population, the employees that were furloughed. Uh, certainly a lot of complexity here to start getting back to the, to the new normal. Um, when, when you think about what, the, you know, in the short term, without considering the future longer term at this stage, but when you think about the next few months and kind of reestablishing a little bit of this, the, the beginning of the new normal, uh, what are you as an association really focused on in terms of helping your members? What are you doing to help this return or this initial phase of the recovery? Well, oh gosh, <laughs> we have, um, you know, it's interesting. We serve an industry that's been devastated and there's, you know, furloughs and layoffs and, you know, people that are, uh, you know, all of a sudden, uh, you know, without something to do. We're just the opposite. We have been retooling and revamping all of our content delivery to be um, all delivered virtually. So um, people probably th that are familiar with HFMA would know that we had to cancel our annual conference uh, in June this year. We had several spring events that we had to uh, reschedule for a later date. Um, and even those dates probably are going to be at risk depending on where this goes. So we have ramped up our um, the uh, how we deliver our content in a virtual way uh, significantly. And so that's done through a, a, a combination of webinars and podcasts. Uh, um, we have a COVID-19 uh, section of our website that is just uh, full of uh, all kinds of technical guidance um, for uh, our members. Um, you know, as they try to navigate through some of the billing issues and the coding issues and, and um, you know, uh, uh, relationships between payers and providers, you know, those are the kinds of uh, articles and content that we have in our COVID-19 section of our website. Um, we have a brand new digital platform that includes our website that gives us this capability to do it in a, in a uh, contemporary manner. It also gives us a... Um, and we, we've also established uh, community groups. And so uh, these are groups on our uh, this new digital platform that are um, not unlike, uh, it's kind of a combination of social media and um, the old listservs that, uh, that we used to use. But there are groups of, uh, we have a community group for all members, but then there are segments of our membership that, that are on these community groups. So we have a revenue cycle group, we have a, you know, a, a various, uh, uh, we have a general CFO group in, in various uh, size organization uh, CFO group uh, set up, and it it's a uh, it kind of taps into 
you know, a long-term part of the HFMA secret sauce, and that is that connection between members. You know, it's one thing for us to give out technical guidance, but our members love to talk to their peers across the country. And so they can do that now when we can't have live meetings to do it. They can do it in our community groups, and they're asking and answering questions of each other um, and helping each other through, uh, you know, just telling stories of what's going on in their own shops and, and asking about, you know, elsewhere. So, um, you know, that is in place. You know, I, I mentioned our technical guidance is is superb. We have a couple folks um, in our healthcare financial practices uh, group that are staying on top of all the technical guidance. And, you know, we've, we've um, um, adopted our previous uh, consumerism guidance um, you know, patient financial communications, um, you know, the billing issues uh, to talk in our in that COVID-19 section about, you know, what what should the steps be taken in terms of dealing with consumers um, in this kind of an environment? Because just like anything else, it's different. So, uh, gosh, I'm probably missing a whole bunch of other things that we're doing, but we are laser focused on delivering content to our members that will help them through this these uh, uncharted waters. We connected with AHIP and produced um, uh, just very recently uh, some guidelines for billing um, that would be helpful to both the provider and the payer uh, side of things. You know, mostly on the uh, you know on the private uh, uh, insurance side of the uh, of the slate here. So um, so it's not just our own guidance, but we reached out and connected with AHIP to produce uh, a, a really good billing guidance for our members. Uh, that's, uh, that's a lot of uh, good uh, good services to your members. You touched upon an interesting theme here, Joe. You know, you're essentially what I'm hearing you talk about is you know uh, the, the idea of collaboration. And, and let me share my my thought here and see if this makes sense to you. But you know, pre-COVID. You know, I think we can recognize that health systems, you know, the competition between health systems was intensifying, right? Obviously, a significant portion of that segment under financial pressure. You know, you could see that essentially, you know, the, the competition for patients really being exacerbated. So you could see those silos, you know, across systems really, uh, you know, becoming deeper. And it, it, you know, when I think about the crisis and how that part of the uh, healthcare industry, really the care delivery side, has reacted, obviously we've seen a lot of um, areas of collaboration, right, around sharing equipment, sharing lessons learned, you know, uh, occasionally sharing, uh, you know, essentially, uh, you know, clinical data that is relevant to making decisions about the future. Um, Are you seeing that collaboration as well, uh, you know, at the level of the industry? And, you know, you talked about your collaboration here with uh, uh, the leader of the AHIP Association. I mean, uh, do you see also an increased collaboration here as a result of, of this crisis between the provider side and the payer side? Well, you know, it's um, so there's two levels of collaboration that you're talking about. So I'll I'll, uh, I'll do I'll talk about the collaboration within the provider community first, and then I'll talk about between payers and providers because they're different. And um, so between providers, honestly, Thomas, I've always seen collaboration. Um, between the, our provider members, um, y- you know, healthcare is a very localized or regionalized um, environment, and so there are competitive, uh, very competitive, sometimes ultra-competitive environments between providers within a community, and so there may not be collaboration within that group, and you know, in that local community, 
but those folks still love to talk to their peers across the country. Um, and so we have always seen collaboration uh, between uh, provider communities. And yes, there is a competitive nature to healthcare. Um, and, um, you know, and there's limits to that collaboration. But we have always seen uh, healthcare systems work um, well. They, they do play well in the sandbox. And so um, in this environment, uh, it was an easy environment for them to tap into that guidance and, and help each other as they go through this. So um, that is, a again, that's a big part of what makes HFMA a cool place to be part of because we facilitate a lot of that uh, dialogue between uh, between organizations across the country. Again, it may not be in the same community, and we certainly steer clear of any, um, you know, any market-sensitive issues. We certainly stay clear of, you know, pricing and those kinds of things. But there's so much that these providers like to share with each other that uh, I just see that continuing, and and uh, and being enhanced. It really helps them um, in this environment. You know, there's an old saying about being lonely at the top. Well. It's true, and you're a CFO of a health system. Sometimes there's nobody else to talk to that really gets your issue, uh, but we provide uh, a mechanism to get with somebody that uh, I call it the cheers effect. You know, you go where everybody knows your name, and I don't. So I, again, long answer to your question, and I don't see that uh, uh, as a big change for us. I think it's been uh, a great benefit to our members in this environment. You know, the the payer and provider um, relationships. I mean, those are um, those are very specific to regions as well. There are some parts of the country where uh, the the payers and providers have good working relationships and you know navigate through those conflicting um, incentives that are natural uh, between a payer and provider and and they work through those. There's other parts of the country where <laughs> you know you can hardly get them in the same room with each other. Um, so. Uh, I, I know that, uh, but it, but behind all of that, honestly, Thomas, we work in an industry where, you know, when it really hits the fan, um, people drop those barriers and they work well together. And I think in this pandemic, you're seeing uh, signs of that. Now, somebody listening to this will probably cite some anecdotal evidence that where there's a fight between a payer and a provider. And, you know, my guess is that's happening as we speak. But, um, you know, again, you cite our relationship with AHIP. That's always been good. We work well with uh, our organizations, work well together. I consider Matt Isles a good friend of mine. And we talk about, you know, those sticky issues every once in a while. And, um, and that's happening at a local level as well. When it comes to a crisis, people in this industry are good people and they step up and they take care of our of our population and that's what's happening so you can find an anecdote to prove anything you want but by and large i see there being uh, a pretty good level of cooperation even in the payer and provider uh, uh, area across the country oh that's uh, that's good to hear and certainly encouraging right if you believe that you know the the success of our recovery here as an economy uh, you know will be predicated somewhat on the quality of that collaboration across systems and between the care provider and, uh, and the payer side. So certainly uh, um, a lot of good stuff here. Now thinking about the future, I think, you know, uh, I think it's, you know, it's fair to, to recognize that, you know, the, the market, the patient environment 
has changed significantly, of course, right? I mean, we're, we've added, you know, 30 million people, um, you know, on the unemployment rate. Um, you know, many, this is essentially this additional pressure. It comes on top, right, of a, of a already pretty deep challenge in terms of, you know, the, the increase in patient liability, the patient balance after insurance, and all of the resulting pressure points with uncompensated care. Um, you know, how do you think about the, the financial health, you know, in the future of uh, the care delivery ecosystem in the U.S.? How do you think about it? You know, do you make a difference between urban institutions versus rural institutions that might have been already a little bit more at risk pre-COVID? I mean, how, what's your outlook about the financial strength of the care delivery ecosystem uh, in the future? Oh, boy. Well, I'm nervous. Um, now, when I say that, um, we are benefited in this industry uh, as compared to other industries uh, in that uh, we know that there it's not like healthcare is not going away. Um, you know, we're about one fifth of the economy. Um, and, you know, we could argue whether that's too much or not and, and not to get into that now. But the reality is, um, you know, we're going to have to continue to take care of, uh, of people. And um, so, you know, healthcare is not going away. How it gets delivered and, you know, the, the details will continue to change significantly. But at least we are comforted in the fact that healthcare isn't going away. That said, I, that, you know, the, the financial implications of this, both short term and long term, are scary. Um, you know, we've talked about the short term implications and, you know, health systems losing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And, um, but when you start to look longer term, and I just saw last week, um, in fact, EY did a, um, a, uh, a webinar for us and some of the data that came out of that is that they're predicting that in the you know a year or two down the road i can't remember the exact dates but they're talking about an increase in uninsured of almost four million people an increase in uh, medicaid recipients which everybody knows that the healthcare industry loses money on uh, an increase in medicaid recipients of about eight million a decrease in commercial coverage of about 12 million people um, you know, those kinds of data uh, on, an, on an industry that was already operating, and I'm talking about the hospital, the provider side, already operating at razor thin, if not loss uh, margins, is scary. And um, yet it's the biggest question that we have is, um, you know, is what does this look like going forward? In the short term, we've shown that we can adapt and we've shown that we can move rapidly um, when um, when push comes to shove, and at the uh, even at the uh, financial peril of uh, many organizations, but long term, it's really a subset of our this national debate um, that we're having right now. And how how quickly do we open up, and what does that opening up look like? And and even if we do open up the economy, are people going to be comfortable um, venturing out? Um, you know, if we if we open up too slowly, there'll be um, you know, this huge economic impact that might make those numbers I just cited even worse than they are. Um, you know, what, what you don't hear enough about in terms of the economic slowdown are um, those societal impacts that impact health. Um, you know, social, you know, the impact on social determinants of health or the impact on the mental health environment. I, I saw data just the other day where 
the numbers associated with suicides and domestic abuse are, excuse me, domestic abuse are skyrocketing. And those are just two data points on all these, um, you know, social issues that happen. Um, so if we open up too slow as an economy, then you know what are the uh, what are the health impacts of that on our society? And you know when do those lines cross? If we open up too fast, you know we're looking at additional surges of COVID-19, and and uh, you know what does that entail? So um, I'm I'm nervous about the uh, both short and long-term impact of this on our industry. I think it, you know your the last part of your question was about differences between rural and urban and certainly there are differences uh, i think both are going to be under attack i think we're going to have to redefine what it means to be a hospital in many of our communities across the country both in an urban and rural setting and um, maybe you know being a hospital in a rural setting you know means you don't have uh, you know, inpatient beds. Maybe it's a stabilization and you can deliver babies and take care of other things that are urgent in nature um, with telehealth and, um, you know, ambulance transport capabilities to a larger system. You, you know, and maybe that's not closing a hospital. Maybe that's redefining what it means to be a hospital. So those are some of the implications that are going to come from this financial strain that's on the industry right now. Mm -hmm. So, so basically, really, if I net it out, a, a transformation of the fabric of care delivery uh, in the context of a a patient that has uh, different needs, right, and where mental health will become a priority, and then uh, second, obviously, you know, um, finances and revenues that are fundamentally very compressed. Um, let me kind of um, go towards the the revenue cycle management dimension. Obviously, HFMA. Um, you know, as an association, you know, very focused on the financial object, right, the billing object. Uh, and do you have a perspective on how that specific area of the hospital value chain, that specific process uh, will evolve in the future as a result of um, of the crisis we're going through? Yeah. So let me, um, Thomas, let me make one more comment on your last question uh, or the, your last statement. And then I'll talk about revenue cycle. You know, you made a statement like that, you know, that this will point us more towards uh um, you know, attention to social determinants and, and mental health. I hope that's the outcome. Uh, we've, we have not done a good job in the society of funding those. And I got to tell you, from a, if you were to look at this purely from a financial perspective, what we've done in this country is really dumb. <laughs> we, we don't uh, take care of those social determinants. Um, and uh, we don't uh, focus on mental health. We don't focus on primary care. All of those things would provide, if you did it the right way, would provide a significant return on investment. Uh, and yet our, the mechanisms set up and how our industry works today uh, aren't set up uh, to do that. And, you know, we get what we pay for. And so I hope that's the outcome of this, is that there will be a um, you know, some deep thinking and rational thinking, some apolitical thinking about how we approach uh, some of those other elements of that are driving all kinds of chronic conditions and therefore all kinds of costs. So I hope your point about that we focus on mental health and, and uh, social determinants, I hope you're right. Um, I'm not convinced. <laughs> it's a tricky environment. Um, 
but uh, I hope that's the case. Now to your question, uh, in terms of revenue cycle, you know, I think of this like I do a lot of the things in healthcare that we're dealing with is that we were already on a trajectory to change significantly in both in care settings, but also specific to revenue cycle management. And so, uh, you know, we, we things like uh, movement toward, and we've had a lot of conversations within HFMA and, and conferences on, um, you know, what's going on with artificial intelligence or machine learning, um, you know, those kinds of, of, uh, uh, of data management tools, the analytical tools, et cetera. And that's just going to continue. That was there before. It's going to continue and it's going to continue at a faster pace. Um, you mentioned earlier about the environment, about people working at home and, you know, some health systems, uh, even large complex health systems just were not set up to have some of their revenue cycle people working at home. And in, you know, in fact, others have, or some have had to continue to have their employees come into work in this environment. And so they're scrambling to keep within six feet and, and adopt social distancing um, and PPE related uh, procedures so they could allow that. Whereas other health systems made a pretty quick pivot to uh, a working at home environment. And some of those systems are finding um, productivity increases uh, as a result. And so, I, you know, some of these issues are specific to revenue cycle. Some of them are broader than that, but these are things that are not new, but they're going to continue at a faster pace. I think it's crystal clear that within a few years, uh, we're going to be doing revenue cycle management within our health systems with far fewer uh, people, far fewer FTEs than what we do today. And I think this just shows that this, this, this COVID-19 environment shows that many of these things can be done and will be done and the pace will just quicken. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This is certainly aligned with, uh, you know, with my views that at the end of the day, I mean, you know, if, if you look at the equation, uh, hospitals are going to need a higher level of performance of the revenue cycle management process as we know it. The, the yield has to be challenged and increased, right? We need to be able to collect more faster on a more predictable basis at a fraction of the cost to collect. And you're absolutely right in my perspective that, you know, this will be achieved through you know, leveraging, you know, artificial intelligence, automation, leveraging data fundamentally and, and moving a little bit from a, you know, traditional focus on, you know, trying to lower the cost to collect towards really leveraging data to maximize the collection. And I think, you know, to, to add to your, to your point, I think that the, the nature of the patient engagement uh, as we've known it as part of RCM will change as well because, you know, in the context of, Increased challenges, you know, uh, around patient liability, you know, really the the, um, the point of interaction during the continuum of care when it comes down to you know the financial reconciliation, I mean, will be will be real opportunities for financial education to minimize the level of uncompensated care, uh, you know, finding coverage, verifying eligibility. I mean, truly, I think the patient um, uh, engagement dimension of our traditional RCM processes will evolve drastically in the future, hopefully for the better. Um, well, we, we before have, we sign we, up. We, yeah, yeah, we have just, I think I can make a comment on that. We have got to, as an industry, become more consumer centric. Um, I, 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 the things that we put our consumers through to access our care 
um, would not be tolerated in any other industry. And the more light that gets shown on those issues, and again, in this pandemic, there's just more attention being paid toward healthcare as if there wasn't enough already. Um, I think it's gonna continue to move us to to and demand of us to be more consumer centric. And, you know, we I, I've worked in healthcare systems for a long time and I've heard this term patient centric a thousand times in meetings. And yet we're patient centric until it comes time to develop uh, processes and, and workflows and then we organize around ourselves in some way, shape or form. And I hope you're right, Thomas. I And, and that's been our uh, HFMA and my personal call to action here is that we have just got to become more consumer centric in all of our activities. And um, so I, I um, uh, again, that's not an environment that's different from before, but I think there's going to be a spotlight on it and, um, and tools developed that are going to move us further down that consumerism path. So, yeah. So before we, uh, before we sign off, you know, we've covered a lot of ground, right, Joe? We talked about, you know, the pain points, you know, managing the capacity, uh, you know, the supply chain around PPE, you know, the difference between rural and urban institutions. Uh, you know, we talked about what HFMA is doing to help the members around education and, you know, uh, easier, uh, easing the access to emergency funds. Uh, we talked about, you know, the, um, the evolution of care, telehealth, digital health, and then the movement towards a patient-centric financial reconciliation exercise. Um, but I, I need to ask you, you know, when you consider the crisis in the COVID situation to date, I mean, what has this situation really taught you about our, our U.S. healthcare system? Is, is anything coming up? You know, do you see any, any real positive? Is there a silver lining? I mean, what are you taking out of this situation to date? What is remarkable for you? Well, the first part of my answer is, um, you know, I, I, I mean, this crisis is far from over. Um, and, you know, here we are speaking in May. I know in my hometown that the, the uh, projections are that we won't peak until midsummer. Um, you know, as we start to open up communities around the country, you know, worries about, uh, you know, a, a second or third wave are real. And so, you know, we're, we're a long way to go. And so I, I um, you know, interesting um, in, you know, my own hometown, I talked about the peak in the summer as you know that's a couple months away and yet we were kind of the in michigan anyway the uh the beginning or the epicenter of some of these protests and i'm not taking a side on this because i think there's arguments on both sides but um it, it was interesting that you know we've not even reached our peak yet and um there's a lot of frustration that's built so we're we're long ways from over and our healthcare systems are going to continue to battle this for you know months and months into you know probably years. But what it's taught me about the healthcare system is um, is a couple different things. Um, one is that we were as in that not one part of the industry, um, but the if you look at the entire healthcare uh, system uh, throughout the whole country. You know, it's it is broken in many ways. It's fragmented. It's you know, payment uh, policy create perverse incentives. There's unfriendly toward consumers. Um, we ignore social determinants and mental health, the things that we've talked about. Um, but you know, so it's not perfect. But I will tell you, it's not as broken as you might think. Uh, and I get frustrated, quite frankly, because if you, I, I can almost not, I, I almost have to stay away from social media now because 
there's so many people that use this crisis as a platform for policy when we're right in the middle of a crisis. And if we thought that um, policy, uh, you know, payment policy was um, the central part of our uh, preparedness, then how would you explain uh, the UK having, um, you know, the second highest amount of COVID cases and deaths in the world? Um, and, you know, with their NHS. And so it's not specific to payment policy. Um, it is, uh, you know, it's the virus. And we were, uh, it, it does lead me to say that as a, as a country, we were uh, woefully prepared for, uh, for a pandemic. Um, you know, if you go back into history, we did have resources. Uh, I think this was post 9-11. Uh, where we invested in, uh, or maybe it was after one of the earlier viruses, but oh, under one of the previous administrations, uh, that we did have stockpiles of of supplies and you know ventilators and PPE and those kinds of things, and then our funding for that has become like in a lot of areas been very short sighted, and and uh, so I I um uh, you know I think that. Uh, you know, those are problems and those are things that hopefully that we will learn from. But what has been really clear to me, and while our system is broken and it's not as bad as you think, we are an industry of heroes. And that has been uh, demonstrated, you know, by and large. And you, we all hear about the clinical heroes and, you know, my gosh, what they're doing. I And that's, that is personal to me. My daughter's a PA. Some of our you know, some of your listeners might have heard me say this before because I tell stories all the time because she, you know, she lets me know what goes on. She's a PA in a cardiothoracic intensive care unit at a uh, major health system here in Michigan at Spectrum Health. And uh, so she gives me the inside scoop of what's going on in the inpatient world and always HIPAA protected. She's like uh, hyper vigilant about that, but she does give me a view into that. And so I'm telling you what's happening on the front lines in this country is absolutely heroic. And as broken as we seem like we are, when you read social media and all the commentary and the frustration and the lack of consumerism and all those things that you know we complain about, deep down, um, we are an incredible industry that are full of loving people that are that will um, put their own right lives at risk uh, to take care of others. And you know, honestly, not to get too sappy about it, Thomas. That's what drew me into healthcare in the early part of my career. That's what motivates me today. And and uh, I can say in this crisis, man, we have learned that in spades. That that there's a lot to be proud of in this industry. So uh, yeah, I, hope no, I couldn't I couldn't agree we... more. You know, I I heard uh, uh, the CEO of a large health system um, basically share a quote pre-COVID a few months ago. And uh, his quote was that progress in healthcare lies at the, at the intersection of compassion and innovation. And to your point, I think that, you know, this, this situation here that we're going through, and I agree with you, it's just the beginning. And, and in many ways, the recovery will be far more complicated than the early phases of the, uh, the crisis. But, you know, this crisis has really revealed the resilience and the passion of people working on the front lines. And, you know, I think we've got, we've got a lot to be thankful for. But thank yes. you again, Joe, for your time today. Uh, you know, thank you for taking the time to uh, chat with us about the challenges that care providers are facing because of the situation and the long-term implications of this pandemic on our healthcare industry. For our listeners, stay tuned to the Change Healthcare Podcast series 
for more interviews with leaders across the industry about the future of healthcare. And for more information on digital transformation, revenue excellence, or other healthcare IT and technology topics, please visit changehealthcare.com. Again, I'm Thomas Lohr, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Take care. You've been listening to the Change Healthcare Podcast. For more information on this and other healthcare IT topics, please visit changehealthcare.com. Don't forget to check the show notes for useful links to related resources and our contact information. Thanks for listening and have a great day.